Hello, and welcome to the Early American Brass Band Podcast. I'm Chris Triano, joined always by Stephen Canistris. Oh, I cut you off. Oh, you cut me off that time. Now (laughs) nobody is going to know who is with me in episode 24. (laughs) <laughs> oh well, well, they'll they'll have to figure it out on their own, I guess. But yeah, yes, they'll, this they'll is figure it out. this is episode twenty-four, and in this episode, we are interviewing Rob Stewart. Rob Stewart is known to many in the field of early American brass bands as a brass technician, brass restorer, brass repairman, brass historian, and collector. Uh, we are very excited to finally get to have Rob Stewart on the show. Yeah, definitely, it was great to. Um... Uh, like I said last week with uh, Jeff Stockham, it's great to get another legend in the field uh, whose name has come up countless times uh, in previous episodes. Um, yeah, and it was great to pick his brain about uh, brass instrument repair, restoration, and, and reproduction. So I, I really enjoyed talking to him, and I think you guys will enjoy the episode as well. Um, and as always, if you like what you're hearing, uh, you can support the show. Uh, by sharing, liking, subscribing, commenting, rating, all that good stuff, you know, wherever you're getting the podcast. Um, as we said uh, previously, we've got a Patreon page and a Teespring store now, if you want to check those out. Uh, we're very grateful for any support you're willing to give uh, through, you know, any avenue. So we hope that you'll check that stuff out as well. Throughout the episode, we'll be referencing uh instruments and some of rob stewart's previous projects uh if you want to follow along at home you can go on rob stewart's website www.robstewart.com that's rob with two b's um so feel free to follow along there for any pictures we'll also link that in the show notes and in the youtube description without further ado here is the interview with rob stewart Thanks so much, Rob, for taking the time to talk to us today. We're really excited to pick your brain about all things uh, instrument repair, restoration, reproduction, all that good stuff. Of course. Thanks so much for your interest in in, uh, what I do. Yeah, yeah. So we usually start uh, with a little bit of background. So would you mind giving us kind of what your musical background is, your musical upbringing, and then, you know, we can get into things from there. Sure. Uh, Well, I... I started playing cornet in fifth grade, I believe. I think that's when most people do in the school band. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't pick the cornet, just there was one in the house because an older brother had played it for a year and quit. And so there, there it was. <laughs> I think I wanted to play drums at the time, which is hard to believe with my personality. I wouldn't make a good drummer. But uh, <laughs> yeah, we had, uh, I still have my old Selmer Signet cornet that my folks bought for 30 bucks. Nice. So yeah, I played in, played cornet in the school bands through high school. Uh, you know, I had a trumpet by the time I was like a junior in high school, and um, was a pretty good uh, high school trumpet player, and had ambitions to go on with it. But um, uh, I think playing in some of the honor bands and um, played in a community orchestra. It was high school and college kids. You know, I suddenly realized that, oh, there's a whole big world out there and I'm not all that good. <laughs> so I, I thought, uh, you know, either I devote myself to practicing eight hours a day or I find something else to do. Right. That's pretty much it. The music in our household, my mother played the piano and my sister plays the piano and not, not much else. A younger brother played, started playing saxophone after me and he got really good, a really good jazz player. 
Awesome. So, so you didn't continue with music after, or you know, pursuing music as a career after high school? No, no. I my senior year, I pretty much knew that uh, wasn't going to be the path. So yeah, I was so- headed towards business, and um, that's when I kind of fell into the repair thing. I hadn't really thought of the repair business before that. It seemed pretty mysterious to me, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I my dad had brought that cornet. The tuning slide was stuck, so he brought it to a local repair shop, and it, uh, he was pretty pissed because it cost twelve bucks to get the tuning slide working. <laughs> <laughs> it was only a thirty-dollar cornet. Yeah, man. So uh, that was my only experience with repair. And then it, it, when I was a senior in high school, I was taking a night class at Fullerton College and right uh, motorcycle repair of all things. So I thought you know I might get into mechanics. Um, Right next door to that was a repair shop uh, in a classroom, and the guy was taking students for night school. And um, I poked my head in there once in a while, and eventually he talked me into taking the class. <laughs> so that's how it got started. Nice. nice. That's awesome. So so this whole time you were kind of still playing the instrument on the side, or, or did you essentially put down playing altogether? Yeah, I was, well, I was playing in the high school band and all that stuff. I think I was still in the orchestra. Nice. And um, the first year of, I, out of high school, I went to Fullerton Junior College, and um, I played in the band and one or two other groups there, uh, brass quintet, you know, entertainment value. But eventually, with taking up too much of my time, I had to quit that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And then yeah, I'm did, gonna make a living. <laughs> yeah. So then did the uh interest in repair kinda take off faster and before your interest in historical instruments or or did they run kind of parallel or how did that work? I, I already had the interest in historical instruments before that. I, I, I grew up in northern Illinois and um even before we moved to California when I was fifteen, uh at the public library I'd always be looking for books um you know on old cars airplanes boats and mm-hmm. and musical instruments of all things <laughs> uh-huh. so i had already seen some of the the uh, books that i would later realize were some of the greats in the early uh studying historical musical instruments mm-hmm. right yeah, yeah for sure yeah no i'm kind of curious what what was your maybe career path for lack of a better term but like so how did you get you know from you know, you're, you say your senior year in high school, taking the night classes to kind of where you are now in the world of instrument repair. Yeah, well, I, I was thinking of heading into engineering. I was accepted at Fullerton, uh, Cal State Fullerton, the engineering department mm-hmm. when I was a senior. And, um, you know, I, I just was never that great of a student. Um, yeah, you know, I think to, today, if I were a kid today, I'd be diagnosed with ADD, you know, <laughs> hard time focusing. <laughs> so I knew that it was going to be a tough haul if I went through the university. And uh, so, uh, you know, I was looking at other mechanical things at the time. And the, like I say, the musical instrument repair thing kind of fell in my lap. And I took to it right away. Within within the first couple months I was taking that night class, I I think I announced to my mother, I'm going to be a brass instrument repairman. <laughs> so I was pretty sure of it. Yeah. And then did you like work in, in shops, you know, along the way, or did you kind of start out doing your own thing and have your own shop pretty much right off the bat? 
Uh, well, fairly early on, but I did the the teacher of that night class had a friend with a music store in Woodland Hills, California, and uh, that guy contacted him and said, "You know anybody that can uh, can do some brass repair here?" So, uh, so he got me the first my first job too, and that, that was less than two years after starting the class. Okay. So I moved to uh, to that area. Uh, it's the San Fernando Valley, and um, I went to work at the music store, which was kind of funny too, because my first day, I literally show up to work and um, head back to the repair shop and ask the music store owner, "Well, you know, who's who's the brass? The who, who's going to show me what to do here? Who's the brass repairman?" And his response was, "That's what I hired you for." <laughs> <laughs> So it was kind of sink or swim. I mean, I was, I had experience in that class, but man, I right. knew very little. Yeah. And then that, that's probably where you cut your teeth. I mean, when you're thrown into the fire. You really have no choice, but to you know, figure things out quickly along the way, I guess, you know, when exactly. stuff comes through. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And, yeah, and that was a real good fit too, because that guy was into, his name was Norm Bartold, Bartold music in Woodland Hill. Uh, it's long gone now, but, um, he always he was a collector and had some interest in historical instruments never um never very studious about it but he he had a pretty big collection of of antique instruments so i you know from the very beginning i was working on some pretty rare antique instruments yeah neat so was it with that hands-on opportunities with the antique instruments that you started kind of getting the bug a little bit and the itch to to start amassing your own collection also was it around that time or yeah probably i couldn't really afford anything then i remember um things coming along that i could have purchased but just couldn't afford it in fact it's funny that how good the memory is of of my late teens because there was one um unsigned cornopian that was in rough shape that i could have purchased for six hundred dollars and there was also a graves um circular b-flat cornet that i could have purchased for 650 dollars oh, and wow. to me they were almost the same they were both so exotic i had no <laughs> idea that that cornopian today is worth 200 dollars, and the graves circular cornet is worth about five thousand dollars yeah yeah seriously. yeah wow that's incredible. but i had no idea what who graves was at the time it was brand new to me yeah of yeah. course do you remember what uh your this might be a difficult question, but do you remember what maybe your first like notable historical acquisition was that kind oh, of yeah. got, got still, the ball rolling? <laughs> I still have it. I, well, like I say, I still have my Selmer Signet Cornet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh, <there>. And <laughs> side note there, when I was in that repair class, <clears throat> that Cornet was also my first relacquer job. Oh, cool. So, so I, if I ever feel too full of myself, I can go and take that out and look at it. It's <laughs> <laughs> come a long way. <laughs> yeah. Funny. But uh, yeah, I, I remember I still have my first two real antique instruments. The very first one was a, is a uh, 1884 Con E flat cornet that was it was really cheap. I think I paid less than a hundred bucks for it, but it mm-hmm. was in really rough shape, so it was a, a early restoration too, and mm-hmm. early restored it. Mm-hmm. And then the second one is even more notable. Uh, it's an E.G. Wright. E flat soprano, you know, nice. saxhorn cornet, uh, bell front. And another case of, I had no idea what it was. I, I realized it was similar to that graves in, in terms of the rotary valves and all, mm-hmm. but, um, but knew nothing else about 
who E.G. Wright was or anything. Mm-hmm. And I think I traded a Besson trumpet for it at the time. Oh. So, you know, about $300 worth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that, that one I still have too. So those, nice. and that took uh, that E.G. Wright plus the graves and a few other instruments that I had seen before that really sparked my interest in the American industry. And um, someone had given me a book, the uh, Bob Eliason's um, uh, Key Bugles in the United States. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, where he covered E.G. Wright pretty thoroughly. And I'd be looking at this instrument I had and the E.G. Wright uh, Key Bugles, and I'd be thinking, there's a connection here. It's the same maker. It looks like it might even be the same bell, you know. Yeah, I thought, yeah. boy, this is pretty exotic. And uh, from from there is where I really uh, started figuring, you know, what else can I read about this? And I even wrote a letter. I think I still have a copy of the letter. Wrote a letter to Bob Elias and at Henry Ford Museum. And and by that time he he had left there, but luckily they forwarded it to him. So I still got a response from him, you know, oh, cool. huh. from uh, New Hampshire. Very nice. Hey. That's awesome. And he, he, um, he, he's really the, one of the greats in this area uh, of interest. The research that he did in the, starting in about 1968, I think, and um, you know, into the 70s, the articles and little booklets that he wrote for Henry Ford Museum and the Smithsonian. Yeah. Um, it, it, the amazing thing is he was the first to really delve into this. And his articles still hold up today as the first go-to reference for, for the subject. There's yeah. very little that we've figured out since then. You know, so <laughs> Bob Eliason really needs to be mentioned in these, you know, when we're talking about uh, the, in, the brass instrument industry in, in the United States in mm-hmm. the mid-19th century. Of course, of course. Yeah. Kind of going back a little bit when you were talking about historical instruments kind of coming into your shop uh, and and having some of your earlier experiences, you know, or not your shop, sorry, the the other shop, but working on the instruments there. Uh, what are some of the like most common issues that you would run into with very old instruments in particular that was kind of like the 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 common things that need to be fixed or restored on them the always the, the biggest obstacles are the previous repairs <laughs> oh, yeah. well wow. they're almost universally done badly and usually done damage to the instrument mm-hmm. making it harder to to restore i'd rather restore an instrument that is just bashed and smashed and and uh, but has never been repaired before <laughs> than one that's been restored last week and then i i always refuse those ones these days you know yeah yeah sure. if, if you paid to restore it why well, you know i'm not i can't i can't bring it back to anything and then if you kind of have an instrument that maybe needs a little bit more extensive work like it comes in missing parts and stuff what's kind of your process of trying to to restore an instrument that's basically coming to you in pieces <laughs> Uh, well, it's hard to verbally put in, you know, what's the process mostly just, you know, evaluate it to begin with and figure out what's, uh, what's original, what isn't, what's mm-hmm. missing. Do you fabricate yeah. parts mostly based off of like pictures and diagrams kind of thing or? Yeah. Well, copy, at this point, it's copy mostly, other parts or? mostly from experience. 
And right. um, often I have an instrument in my own collection that, uh, you know, I can refer to like a keyed bugle or a lot of these rotary valve instruments. <clears throat> mm -hmm. That makes sense. Not too obscure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's probably really helpful when you have a, you know, a finished product, you know what it's supposed to look like. So <laughs> when something comes in and looks nothing like what it's supposed to look like, I mean, now, yeah, exactly. now, you know, yeah. yeah. I try to show that on my website too. Like uh, it brings to mind the, uh, the, uh, I have a page just on reproducing the little tuning devices for the E flat sopranos, you know, cause it's, uh, mm. I've seen so many, that are so badly done and some that are well done, but they look nothing like the original, you know, mm. so they often function well, but they're, they, they don't look anything like what they should. Um, so I, I showed how, um, you know, how, how to make these things. They're, they're, it's one of the hardest things to make from scratch. Mm. Uh, just, you know, carving out all the little parts and they all have to fit perfectly. And yeah. yeah. Is there ever, uh, a time or, or I guess what's your, your philosophy with re, uh, reproducing parts or, you know, improving an instrument where you prioritize functionality over, uh, period correctness. Is there any oper or any situation where you would knowingly not reproduce something faithfully in terms of trying to make it function better? Not on anything I consider historically important at all. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I have to just turn down some jobs where the guy wants like a extra key added to a key bugle or a mm. ophiclide or something, you know, yeah, yeah. You know even if it's not that important of an ophiclide, uh, uh, I've had several requests, requests in the last five to 10 years, um, you know, where I, I'm kind of on the fence about it. I'm thinking, well, that's not that important of an instrument, but I'm thinking, you know, I don't even need the work, you know, why, why would I want to cut up an original instrument? Yeah, yeah. Right. Did, happy. did you ever do a job like that, that you, after the fact was kind of like, oh, maybe I shouldn't <laughs> have done that. Regretted doing? Oh, I'm mm -hmm. sure. I'm sure. I, I, nothing, a good example doesn't really come to mind at the moment. Well, that's a good thing, I guess. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly that's yeah. far in my past, you know? Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. Yeah, that's always an interesting line to me to walk, like especially when you're when you're doing restorations. And I I think we asked Garmin Bowers uh, a similar question uh, to the one we just asked you about, like when you're when you're restoring something, it's like that that's very damaged. It's like how far do you go, you know, until it's no longer the historical instrument that it came to you as, you know, yeah. like like how 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 much fabrication you know, like what, what's the balance between fabricating new parts for something to make it function. And then as a result of the level of fabrication that you've done, it's like no longer very historically accurate, you know? Well, like yeah, the, well I would always make the part so it is accurate. Even if right. It's not, you know, I mean, a real good example is recently where, uh, you know, I, I wasn't sure what, what I was going to, uh, a, an instrument I restored for myself. It's a, a Graves post horn from the 1840s. Um, and, uh, you know, they're really rare. There's only, I think, six or eight in existence. Um, and it was really, really rough and just cracks in a lot of the tubing. So it took a lot of patches, you know, which, you know, I can see a museum person 
criticizing me even for that and saying, well, you know, it, it's an artifact. It doesn't necessarily have to play. Uh, you can study this instrument in cracked, corroded, cruddy condition, and mm -hmm. it's still uh, worthy of uh, preserving for that purpose. Mm -hmm. But um, but I did decide to to go ahead and restore it, and so I had to put a lot of patches on it. I had to make uh, you know it was missing one of the valve loops, and one of the main tubes was broken in several pieces and mm -hmm. cracks as well. It would have been pretty much impossible to put patches to put it all back together. Um, you know, it had to have at least one sleeve plus five or six patches. It would have been yeah, yeah. so ugly. So I decided, well, okay, I'll make a new piece. Uh, so I, I made a new uh, tube to replace it. But in those cases, I always hang on to the original parts. I think Jeff Stockham mentioned the same thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That, uh, you know, we need to keep that in mind. But uh, even if the goal is to restore this thing, we still want to retain the original parts, original fabric right. for a uh, possible future study. That brings to mind another question. Like when you're, um, when you're working on, you know, an older instrument, and doing patches and whatnot, are you using like modern material? Cause I'm not even sure how different the metal is, you know, between um, an old instrument and, a, and like more of the modern, you know, stock yeah. that you might be using to reproduce parts. Yeah, so. that's, that's an interesting question. Cause there's even been some studying done on what brass alloys were used. Um, like a, there, there's a, an article that was done uh, by some, and I talked to one of the guys too. Uh, trying to figure out the exact content of the metal on some early 19th century French horns. Mm -hmm. And um, and their conclusion, I was really glad the way they ended the article, because as I'm reading it, they're talking about, well, there's this content of zinc and this content of copper and this amount of lead. And, you know, and in my mind, I'm thinking they're, they're, testing the alloy of 150 to 200 year old brass that has deteriorated and some of the material would have migrated out of it. Mostly the zinc is the least stable of most of the metals that are in it. So it's not going to have as much zinc as it originally had. And so this is going on in my mind as I'm reading this thing. And then at the end, in the conclusion, they say, well, you know, we can't be sure what alloy it was originally because it changes over time. You know, the humidity and the heat and, uh, you know, the conditions that it had survived in uh, will change the, mm -hmm. both, mostly the surface, but even the interior, uh, the fracturing in the metal, uh, the zinc will migrate out. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, so we don't even know for sure what alloys were, but with the beauty of brass <clears throat> is it's such a standard alloy now. It's hardly different than what was used 200 years ago. Um, gotcha. You know, the people have argued that with me, but the, the differences are much smaller, especially when you compare it to like nickel silver that we see a lot in American instruments. You know, those alloys are all over the place. Mm. Even in one instrument, uh, one, one example, I even took a picture of it. I think it was a Fisk cornet. You know, the crooks are made in halves and they're uh, braised together. Mm. And one half of, one, of a crook was visibly a different alloy than the other half of the same crook. Hmm, yeah. <laughs> so 
he, he ran out of his supply of nickel silver, and then his next uh, sheet of nickel silver was a slightly different alloy. Yeah, wow. Wow. <laughs> that's pretty crazy. Yeah, that's interesting. So, so that's, it's harder to patch nickel silver and have the alloy visually matched than it is with brass. Brass is usually quite easy. It's almost exactly like what we call cartridge brass today. It's uh, approximately 70% copper, 30% zinc. That's not exact, but around that. So I know a lot of times with, with period horns, we'll, we'll say how much softer the metal is or how much more malleable the metal is. Is that because they were using thinner brass, like just like less of it, or is it that change of the actual chemistry that makes it softer over time? Mostly the, the former, mostly it's thinner brass to begin with. Um, especially the, the mid 19th century, they, for some reason, they like these things as light as possible, thin as possible. Um, making them very light in your hands and easily damaged and such. So um, normally the deterioration of the metal will cause it, cause it to crack when it's, um, when it's bent, you know, if it's badly deteriorated. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and that uh, using the thinner metal or using the thinner brass back then probably made it more susceptible to uh, body chemistry also, right, and yeah. as a form of deterioration. Good in question. terms of like skin, skin and uh, saliva, kind of breaking mm -hmm. it down. Yeah, I I think it would. It's not that big of a factor, really. I mean, it's it's going to deteriorate some, but you know, if you use a modern trumpet for twenty years, eight hours a day, you know, <laughs> it's going to deteriorate quite a bit. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, it's it's interesting cultural question too because these brass instruments were relatively much more expensive back then than they are today. Even a $3,000 trumpet today is cheaper than, you know, a 50 or $60 cornet would have been in the 1860s. Mm -hmm. um, in, in terms of what people made, you know, their, yeah, yeah, yeah. their uh, income. So, um, Paying amazing more thing for less metal <laughs> is that they were the brass bands were so popular that there are so many brass instruments from that time, considering how expensive they were. Yeah, how much they would have cost a person to buy, or a band to buy, or a, or a town, you know, whoever was paying for it, it was it was a big expenditure. Mm -hmm. So, I, I mean, I guess my point there, kind of uh, rambling, but um, I think they treasured them more. They took better care of them for the most. Part, and uh, they would have kept it clean and, and tried not to damage it and that sort of thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm always surprised to see in, you know, pictures of bands, especially during like the Civil War and stuff, and you see them out in the field all holding their instruments and stuff. And I'm surprised that like the bills aren't like folded in half and that there's like <laughs> these like major like football size dents in these things, you know, considering the elements and just the nature of what they were doing out there. You know, I find it amazing that they seem relatively smooth back there. Yeah. No, I, th I think they did treasure them more than we do today. They, they took better care of them. Uh, speaking of taking care of personal instruments, we were kind of alluding to your collection and kind of your, your hobby of instrument collecting earlier. And you mentioned the, the first two, period instruments that you kind of considered as being kind of the the start 
to your historic collection. Are there any other uh, instruments that you'd like to highlight or maybe some some gems in your collection mm -hmm. that you'd like to talk about? Well, that Grace Posthorn is one. <clears throat> you know, the, the, I have a lot of things now that I never thought I would would have owned, ever mm -hmm. been able to uh, acquire. Uh, that one partly because it was so incredibly rough condition that <laughs> I could afford to buy it. <laughs> Uh, and a few others like um, I've I've always fancied the circular cornet, the American style circular cornet, mm -hmm. um, much more than the over-the-shoulder cornets. You know, so I've bought and sold a, a number of over-the-shoulder cornets over the years, mm -hmm. and there's only one that I ever kept, and it's a Graves B flat from the 1850s, which is extremely rare, the only one known to exist, mm -hmm. and um, the um, Circular cornets, I never thought I would be able to own one, so I actually built one for myself and took several years to copy a Graves circular cornet uh, meticulously. I made the entire valve section, literally made every part of the horn, oh. whereas the replicas I normally make for people, I use modern valves and mm -hmm. uh, you know, crooks and you know as many modern mass-produced parts as i can get away with <laughs> uh, otherwise you know anyway so i, I got to figure that building this grave circular coronet for myself i would have had to charge a customer i don't know 12 to fifteen thousand dollars for the amount of work so yeah. and then then eventually i did buy a uh fisk uh circular coronet <laughs> nice <laughs> and and i eventually sold that uh the Graves copy to uh, Steve Ward. He has that now, mm -hmm. which is kind of funny. Uh, to to pay for the uh, the Fisk circular cornet, and now I own three circular cornets: a Fisk, a Graves, and a uh, Richardson. I'm not I'm not familiar with the Richardson name. No, it's much more obscure. I do have a page on my website um, okay. where I did a lot of research because it's a very fascinating story. Uh, Richardson was an important part of the early uh, Boston scene at Brass and Shank. Okay. He um, was in partnership with uh, Henry Sibley, which is another guy we can talk about too, but um, and uh, made bra uh, brass instruments obviously on a much smaller scale than E.G. Wright and mm -hmm. Graves and Allen and Fisk and those guys, uh, but he was obviously an accomplished maker. Uh, and quite mysterious because he, he, when researching him, mostly I'd find out uh, about his professional career as a player mm. and um, much less about his uh, manufacturing. So he must have always just had a small shop or working in somebody else's shop. He was also in partnership with Leonard in Boston for a short mm -hmm. time. So and some of these guys were, had a tendency to move around a lot, you know, mm. I guess yeah. opportunities. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And Sibley was another Boston maker, you said? Yeah, Sibley is a real interesting character. There's not, we, we he's another guy that Bob Lyson wrote about as manufacturing the very earliest E flat soprano keyed bugles, mm -hmm. uh, by, um, you know, basing it on the B flat and, uh, the Ned Kendall that, um, Jeff Stockham mentioned that he, he, uh, played that was made by Henry Sibley. And, uh, uh, anyway, H Henry Sibley's career started like in the 1820s or early 30s. And he was a machinist, probably in, um, 
in the uh, textile mills and went on to work in the uh, locomotive field, musical instrument field. He made artificial legs and umbrellas. (laughs) You know, he was involved in a lot of different stuff. But anyway, his name keeps popping up. And it seems likely to me that he was connected with almost all the uh, Boston makers uh, before the 1860s. Um, we don't have a direct connection between he and um, Graves or Wright, but uh, it also appears that Wright started in the in a textile mill and learning um, machining, yeah, okay. how to run machines and such. And so it seems likely to me that. They certainly would have known each other mm-hmm. and possibly uh, Sibley was involved in setting up uh, Wright's shop in Boston. Uh, one of the things we found about uh, Sibley was that he he was so skilled as a machinist that he would build machines for other machine shops to, to uh, you know, uh, run their shop, yeah. you know, specialized machines for, for Mostly, it's not mentioned what they were for, but uh, that's one of the connections to railroads. Um, there's an article about him uh, building machine for a shop that made parts for locomotives. Mm, wow. So it also makes sense that he was building machines for musical instrument makers to uh, run their shops. Uh, kind of going back to something you said before about your, your Graves circular and how it's the only B-flat circular that we oh, know. Oh, no, it was, it was the over-the-shoulder. Sorry, I mentioned that in passing, so it's... Uh, oh, okay. What, what was the the one the, the one of a kind that you own? Uh, Graves B-flat over-the-shoulder. Yeah, so, so with uh, the horn being one of a kind and with it being in B-flat, I was wondering your opinions on the reason for the scarcity of, of some of these instruments, if they were so <clears throat> popular during the time, I know that there's some, some theories and stories that kind of go around, but I was wondering what, what your thoughts on that are. I, I think it's multiple reasons. I think for, for one thing, the E flat soprano was the solo instrument, mm-hmm. more of the more expensive instruments were built for the E flat players. Uh, in more numbers, the, the B-flat in the early bands was considered an alto. Um, I think in the Dodworth book, they even call it an alto, the B-flat alto, mm-hmm. uh, sax horn or cornet. Um, so it was kind of a, a melody instrument. So that, you know, think of the alto horn today, you know, what we think of alto horns. Yeah, yeah. That's mm-hmm. how they saw the B-flat cornet in those early mm-hmm. years. Interesting. Um, so and so not as many of them were treasured and mm-hmm. kept in good condition so a lot of a lot more of them probably got thrown out or you know ruined by being handed to the kid and he ruined it that kind of thing mm-hmm. and, and probably even more reasons than that but that seems to make the most sense to me you think there's any credibility to the two stories of either over the shoulders or circulars being converted to bell front instruments mm-hmm. or the uh was it the the missile casing theory? <laughs> <laughs> Anything brass would get scrapped and and yeah. recycled. You know, and and what I said before about the E flats 
there would have been more high high value E flats around. So so more number of, of B flats would have been recycled, scrapped. Um, so you know, I, I kind of discount that. I mean, anything that's scrapped it, it has low enough value. Um, but um, uh, remind me again what you were saying. Uh, if, sorry. No, it's like it just if the the scrap metal or if uh, the bell conversion would lead to be, less. Oh, the conversion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, certainly we do see a lot of uh, of not a lot. We do see instruments that were converted from over the shoulder to bell front. Um, and a few rare cases where you can see the other way around, uh, uh, hmm. upright baritone converted to over the shoulder. Hmm. I don't think very many of them were converted and, and uh, then never understood to have been converted. They mm -hmm. would have been converted, used by a kid, and then thrown away or <laughs> scrapped. <No. clears throat> and uh, that would have happened to the E-flats as well. It's not, uh, and when you really think about it, I guess, because the E flats went out of vogue, they weren't going to be used as much, and so, so perhaps more B flats were converted to bell front mm. and eventually used up and thrown away. But um, uh, I, I don't think that w the numbers were that large. You know, by the time the over the shoulders were completely out of vogue and considered pretty worthless, there were so many really cheap. European instruments available. You, know, you could buy a cornet for a brand new cornet for twelve bucks, and mm -hmm. you know how much labor would it cost to convert one? Uh, I, I'm not sure <laughs> what mm -hmm. that would be, but uh, yeah, yeah. You know, why not buy a brand new one? I was wondering, uh, we're talking about brand new instruments. Uh, kind of a maybe a fourth segue here on my part, but um, we're talking about instrument reproduction. So like a brand new old instrument, you, you do some uh, reproducing, correct? And I'm just wondering how you got into instrument reproduction. And maybe, you know, you saying you reproduced instruments for yourself before you were able to get them, you know, to yeah. restore like that circular cornet, but is that maybe how you got into? Uh, uh, well no, that was a singular case. Uh, okay, gotcha. Um, it, it, actually, going back to Bartold Music again, he had uh, he had a number of Civil War era instruments, and uh, you know this would have been the late seventies. And he told me, he said, you know, these things are becoming valuable. You should start making these. And and his idea was to take like a modern piston valve trumpet and make the bell point over your shoulder, and then sell that to these. These Civil War bands who were desperate for, for over-the-shoulder <laughs> yeah. instruments, yeah. and that never appealed to me at all. I never made anything like that while I was at Bartold Music, <clears throat> but uh, but it wasn't long after that, uh, you know, after I started my own shop in '79. '79 um, is also the year that Effie Olds went out of business, and and they mm. auctioned off everything that was left in the factory. So there were just thousands of new old stock olds parts floating around southern california mm -hmm. back then and uh I, I i was broke at the time of the auction so i couldn't bid on any of the uh, the uh lots that were being sold mm -hmm. but i later bought things from people that did buy you know they, they would have these big roller bins full of parts <clears throat> and you had to bid on like two or three of these bins full of parts yeah. 
I don't remember what they went for, but so these guys would buy these bins and, you know, figuring, well, I'll scrap some of it. I'll try to use some of it and the rest I'll sell off. So, so I bought parts from guys that had bought these bins full of old parts. And that included a lot of rotary valves and hmm. uh, a few bells and things and uh, crooks, things that I would need. And so I think by about 80 or 81, I thought, well, I can make a new over-the-shoulder cornet now. So with the old uh, French horn rotary valves and an old bell, I built the first uh, replica that I ever made. And it was all brand new parts. You know, it wasn't just uh, hacked up old old horns. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So what, did you, for that, for that first cornet example, did you just use those parts and make it into the shape of what you kind of recognize it as being, or were you actually using those parts and referring back to a design of a, maybe an instrument yeah, I, collection or a schematic or something? Yeah. It's funny how memory is from that, from your, <laughs> when you're in your twenties, you know, cause I do remember really well, uh, you know, I was working out of just a garage, a garage of, in a rented house, a house that I rented. And, um, uh, I, I didn't have access to original over the shoulder instruments. So I was looking for pictures in, in books mm-hmm. and things. And I remember the picture that I had was, uh, it was an ad in the back of the American Musical Instrument Society journal mm-hmm. of an E flat cornet. I thought, Oh, here we go. Here's a real nice mm-hmm. picture, real good photograph. This is, this is how I'm going to make it. And it wasn't even an American made instrument. It was an import, but that mm-hmm. didn't really matter. It was the right shape. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, it, it just, just based on a photograph basically. And, and you know what the few originals I had seen by then. Yeah. Yeah. I know we, we talked to like Randy Cable and we've talked to a number of other people that have, uh, you know, purchased and, and extensively used your instruments after that first over the shoulder instrument that you made, did you eventually kind of create your own design or were you, copying other specific instruments, you know, as you got more into it or how did that work? Yeah, well, it was, it was always an evolving thing. I, I always wanted to make them as accurate to the originals as possible. But like I mentioned earlier, <clears throat> it's always a, a balancing act. You know, I have to be able to make this to a price that I can sell it to somebody. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to make instruments that I'm just going to pile up in the shop and go broke, you know, and then they auction yeah. them off. <laughs> True. Yeah. So, so yeah, it, using as many mass produced parts as I can. <clears throat> and even the, the earliest over the shoulders, uh, large horns that I made, I would use like the, uh, the large branches from, uh, I'm trying to remember now, this is so many years ago, but you know, like some of the branches from, um, marching baritone horns or something I would use for the bottom branch of a over the shoulder bass, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, and yeah, acoustically yeah. it worked okay. It was not, not necessarily ideal. And, and I realized that at the time, but I mean, my instruments were cheap. I think the first over the shoulder two by made would have been about 1984, I think 83. I probably sold it for $1,200. It was a lot of work. (laughs) Anyway, but I realized that as good as they were, it wasn't ideal. So eventually I started making all those branches myself. It was a lot of work, but I could make them dimensionally correct. So Mm -hmm. they were better instruments. 
I never made any of the large bells. The only bells that I are able to make in my shop are the um, the uh, soprano bells and the key bugle bells. That's pretty much it. So with the smaller instruments that you are folding and forming metal for, are you making like copies of specific instruments then with the instruments that you are doing custom metal work for? Or are they still kind of like your own like Frankenstein design? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> That's not a good way of putting it. But uh, I mean, but it, there's a lot of truth to it. Um, again, as time went on, I tried to make them more and more accurate. <clears throat> and I got to the point where all the E flat and B flat cornets were pretty, pretty good, pretty close to originals. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, the, uh, I made a copy of the, E.G. Wright soprano bell. So, you know, because there, there's no modern equivalent that's really that close to that. <clears throat> so that was one I decided to make myself. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, the ro- and I eventually had rotary valves made to the right bore sizes so that, gotcha. uh, you know, like the E-flat soprano shouldn't have a 468 bore. <laughs> you know, it should have mm-hmm. something around 435. Gotcha, gotcha. So, so the larger instruments I always used, mm-hmm. modern bells that were as close as I could come. Yeah, if you had a uh, an E flat bass with something that required as long of a bell as that, what type of bell? Well, if you look come? at the pictures on my website, the the like that it would be like a normal tuba bell, and then connected to a branch. You know, it wouldn't ha- the bell wouldn't be the full length of the instrument? Got you, got you. Um, and uh, the last half a dozen or so that I made always had a removable bell. Partly as I got older, I realized this is really stupid to have to hold this long, long tuba in front of the buffing machine all day long, you know, because yeah, yeah. <laughs> it takes like a whole day to polish one of those things. Yikes. And uh, so I made the bells removable. And there were, there are a few examples of original over the shoulder instruments where the bell is original. So that is somewhat authentic. Mm-hmm. Even one of the graves, um, there's a graves uh, over the shoulder uh, bass, B flat bass, euphonium size instrument. Mm-hmm. Really, really wonderful instrument and well preserved too. That uh, the bell unscrews right at that point where I was making them unscrew. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, so if I can say it's authentic. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, I've awesome. seen Fisk that way. I've seen a few, uh, few others. Great. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. What would you say is the hardest part to to reproduce for you um, when you're when you're doing these jobs, or is it kind of different from from horn to horn that you're doing? Uh, the first thing that comes to mind is the bottom curve on an Ophiclide. You know, oh, okay. <laughs> I never was a hundred percent sure I knew how they did that originally, but they probably tooled up and they they were able to do it. You know, they were made in halves normally. Um, you know, lateral halves, uh, and then braised together. And, you know, so I would be hammering these things out by hand. It's very, very difficult. But by the, by the last, I mean, I, I think I only made three or four base off the clides. Mm. Um, but I did end up with some pretty rudimentary tools, just things to hammer against, you know, to form these things. Uh-huh. Even the small ones, I've kind of priced myself out of the market now. I, I'm just not willing to work that hard for so little money anymore. So yeah, okay. I uh, 
I've had a couple of guys approach me to make over the shoulder B flat coronets recently. And, and the one, the most recent one is already backed out and it was just too expensive. He could buy an original. Well, actually, no, his, uh, his son was going to play it and he decided to play an E flat soprano anyway. So they found an over the shoulder E flat. I got you. Soprano for less than I could make one for. So, uh, yeah. So are, are you now mostly doing like repair work and not so much like complete fabrication of, of new instruments? Yeah, yeah. I figure I probably make one new instrument a year now. That's that's plenty. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, it's mostly, uh, you know, I'm kind of mostly retired or semi-retired now, <clears throat> and and you know, I have a, a shop in in the behind the house again, like I started. You know, <laughs> I told you about the garage that I rented. Yeah. Yeah. You built a a, a pretty nice shop, you nice. Know, small shop here, and uh, it's it's nice to just not have to work 12 hours a day anymore and yeah of course work in the garden or whatever work on the house yeah that's great yeah. are you uh are you still doing any any playing or playing with any groups or anything or not no so not in quite a while um the only serious playing i did uh of this kind was with the california gold rush band in the mm-hmm. 90s it's hard to believe it was that long ago now but it's over 25 years now yeah and that was quite a good group too it was all um, Southern California professionals, mm-hmm. and, and, which is kind of funny too, because when Steve Sharpie, the guy that started it, when he first approached me, you know, I was negative, and I said, oh, you know, I, I, I've heard a lot of these bands, you know, they're not very good. I don't really want to be involved. <laughs> and then, no. then I, I show up for this thing, and I realize who I'm playing with. And I think, oh my goodness, I'm the, the worst player in this group. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and they they kind of tolerated me because they they thought it'd be good to have me along. With, uh, <laughs> I knew more about the horns than they did, and all that. You know, uh, his uh his products have been incredible. Steve Sharpie's uh yeah. recordings and the bands and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I think he that, was good at getting those things together. It always amazed me what what he was able to do. He he did a, a key bugle presentation, you know, where he talked a lot about Francis Johnson and I know you've covered that pretty thoroughly and, and mm. uh, I agree with Jeff Stockham and uh um the Rodney Marsalis yeah yep. um that uh you know not enough is known by the public about Francis Johnson you know too many people think well it's a real interesting story because he was a black keyed bugle player but <laughs> he was a superstar in his day he wasn't just a black key bugle player I mean uh, his life is much more interesting than, than that, although that is a really fascinating part of it that he was able to do what he did as a black man mm-hmm. in a white world, you know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah sure. Incredible story, definitely. I was wondering, um, you know, since you have so much experience with these historical instruments, if you have a particular maker who is your favorite. Um, and if you do, you know, why that, why that person might be your favorite. Hmm. It, it probably varies, but the ones that I keep talking about, you know, Graves and Wright, I, I think mm-hmm. are usually my two favorites. Uh, you know, Graves started earlier and, and Wright did more, you know, he, he took it further. Graves did an, an amazing thing. For you know, starting, I've even driven through Winchester, New Hampshire. And you, you drive over the river where the, where his shop was and everything, and, and you think, 
it's still a rural backwater today. Imagine huh. in 1825 when he moved there, yeah, well. you know, setting up an industrial shop, making brass musical instruments. It's, it's just an, an amazing story. Um, so, it, you know, it's, it's pretty amazing uh, history to begin with. And that's the kind of thing that really gets me going, too, is, is um, the earliest makers and what they did and how they did it. Uh, and then Wright kind of took it from there uh, and, you know, built a pretty big shop building really, really good instruments. You know, it's good. You know, it, it was hype at the time when they, when they said they were as good or better than anything from Europe. But when you compare them, they really were, they were comparable. The U S industry was always behind the European industry in technology and American-made instruments were always more expensive because we didn't have the uh, the history um, and the number of workers trained and all that kind of stuff. So things were always more expensive here. But um, when you compare the quality, both mechanically and even more so acoustically, of some, some of the best of the American instruments, it's pretty astounding what they were able to do. Yeah. You know, and then the E.G. Wright shop ended up being the Boston Musical Instrument Manufactory, and I've worked on uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of these instruments. And if if they haven't been completely ruined, you know, by abuse and bad repairs and everything else, they are always really good playing instruments. Acoustically, they're really good designs, and that boggles the mind, you know, that they were able to do that in uh, in a country that was behind the times uh industrially yeah yeah but we it's were, we were talk uh, sorry, sorry i was just gonna say we were playing catch up doing a really good job of catching up and we all know we, we ended up surpassing them eventually but mm-hmm. yeah i'm glad you mentioned new hampshire again because i earlier in the conversation um this is a little bit of a tangent but there's a cool museum i think it's in mm. in vermont uh, but it's called the american precision museum um and i mm. It's uh, exactly what the name would imply. It's a museum all about, you know, precision machinery in the United States. I think it's in Windsor, Vermont. But um, I've mentioned before, my dad's a tool and die maker. So Ooh, a couple summers ago, yeah, my fiance was, is, a, is an opera singer. And she was singing with an opera company doing a young artist program in uh, Vermont, New Hampshire, up by Dartmouth. Um, and so on my way back down from visiting her, I stopped through that museum, you know, and they've got, you know, a whole bunch of like really old lathes. And I think they have the Bridgeport, uh, milling machine. That's, you know, the serial number one or serial number zero, you know, one of the first ones. Um, and that's really neat. And it's, it's amazing, you know, how like the history of the need to get things, you know, so precise in manufacturing and just the ingenuity that it took to, you know, make the machining to then make those, those gears and products and stuff. And it just, it blows my mind because it's, it's not, you know, a world that I live in, but, you know, for my dad, I remember texting him while I was there that they had the first Bridgeport and he was like, yeah, we've probably got Bridgeports number two, three, and four at our plant. (laughs) (laughs) They never buy a new one. So but that's interesting. If anyone's ever passing through Windsor, Vermont, I'm pretty sure that's the town where it is. Yeah, I think I have heard of that. I would love to, to go there someday. Yeah, it's uh, pretty small, but um, it, they have a lot of neat stuff there. And uh, I think they have like an apprenticeship program uh, with some uh, some college uh, that, that's close by. 
And I remember when I was visiting, they had a, a few, you know, young people in, you know, explaining things and doing some demonstrations. I remember they have a, like a gear cutting machine that was on a U.S. Navy ship or something, and they make little keychains and stuff. And mm-hmm. so that's what, you know, the apprentices were, were kind of, you know, showing people how that kind of stuff worked. But really neat place. Yeah. Yeah. That's as, as, we're, as you're talking to, I'm looking for a reference. In, I, was, I was talking about Henry Sibley earlier and how important he was. Uh, to the industry and the, the locomotives and everything. He he also, um, there's an article about him correcting a lead screw on a threading machine for a company in Maine. Oh, here it is. I found it. Uh, a company in Maine, the lead screw was incorrect or had too much slop in it. It's hard to tell. You know, journalism even back then, they, they weren't always that correct. But it's hard to, I think it was just too sloppy. They, they said he corrected it, but I think he just made a new screw and nuts for it uh, <laughs> to make thread. Uh, I'm looking for the name of the original company. I mean, I don't find it now, but it says the screw cut for the main firm, now the Brown and Sharp Manufacturing Company of Providence, Rhode Island. <laughs> so Henry Sibley had something to do with the early tool making by Brown and Sharp, which if you're in that. If you if you heard your dad talking much, I'm sure you've heard him talk about Brown and Sharp and their importance yeah. to mm-hmm. measuring tool is what we think of them as now. But they did everything back in the 19th century. I didn't know that the instrument makers or at least some of them were, though, I don't know, not necessarily interdisciplinary, but were machining and doing that type of uh, textile and manufacturing work between different different disciplines you know i kind of always thought of them just as being trumpet makers kind of thing i didn't yeah. know if they would be jumping between trains and you know oh yeah well it's kind of like you know a little bit later when um most of the guys that ended up making the early automobiles started out with bicycles of all things hmm. and know. uh you know some started with a coach building you know building horse-drawn coaches and uh and some came from uh, railroad shops and such but most of them you know start out in bicycle shops <laughs> went on to build automobiles and the wright brothers did too they started with the famously as bicycle makers and then were the first ones to fly yeah there you yeah. Go. i remember when when you and i were talking the other day you were mentioning the the case that you have kind of up against the wall and mm-hmm. and some of your some of your instruments there i know we we touched on some earlier, but, but were there any other instruments that you wanted to kind of talk about or or highlight uh, that are in your collection? We spoke briefly of Richardson. Uh, I do the one of the circular cornets is a Richardson. Um, in C with a uh, uh, whole step cutoff valve, so C and D, um, and you know has a crook for B flat, also which they always do. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's a real fascinating one. That's uh, even before that, I was fascinated with Richardson. But once I got that instrument, I did even more research. I had restored a, a front, bell front um, Richardson for a customer, and was fascinated because usually when I see a name that I'm not familiar with, I make the assumption with that oh that's that's an import. The guy just engraved his name on it. So yeah, yeah. that's what I thought about Richardson until I had the thing in my hands and I realized nope, this is not an import. This is made in boston yeah um 
and so I did a lot of research on on uh, Richardson. So that uh, uh, that uh, I have two web pages on Richardson, one on that bell front, and one on my circular. Uh, and between the two uh, is probably all the history known about Richardson. Hmm. That's cool. Hmm. Um, so that's that's a real notable instrument. And then the, and the Gray's posthorn. Um, just just looking, you know. Obviously, my favorites are in the display case. Yeah. I have an, an E.G. Wright uh, E flat key bugle that is uh, uh, solid nickel silver, which probably the only one in existence that's all nickel silver. Which is kind of funny because there's probably a dozen or more made of sterling silver. Hmm. <laughs> uh, so they're more common than the nickel silver. Interesting. Um, in your collection, are you mostly hanging out in high brass land, or do you do you have some mid to lows also? Uh, I have less of the bigger instruments than I used to. Just they take up more room, you know. That's true. <laughs> I have yeah. a I have an early Fisk tuba uh, bell bell up, um, probably mid to late eighteen fifties. So that's kind of fun. It's so early, mm-hmm. and I've you know one off a Clyde. Um, Probably one or two alto horns, you know, not not much. Oh, and I think I told you about the um, Allen and Hall B flat bass, which is mm. pretty neat, you know, early 1860s. Any uh, any percussion instruments or pure brass? <laughs> no, no woodwinds, no percussion. Yeah. The way it should be. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't let woodwinds in the shop. They have yeah. to stop at the door. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Jeff Stockham was talking about mouthpieces and uh, that that whole issue. You know, I I don't have anything new to add to the discussion about whether you use authentic or modern, uh, but he was talking about the uh, Graves reproduction that we had made by Canstall uh, about eight or ten years ago, and um, he said, "Well, it's not available because the Canstall shop has shut down." But that's not true. Actually, Jim knew that made the mouthpieces there has all the files, he can make that mouthpiece still. Oh, if wow. someone wants a Graves reproduction E-flat soprano mouthpiece, uh, get in contact with Jim New. And if, if you can't find, he's in Utah now, if you can't find him, contact me and I'll figure out how to <laughs> get it going. Awesome. Yeah, yeah that's, that's great to know. Thank you for that. That's, yeah, very good to know. Have you ever experimented with manufacturing mouthpieces at all? Only enough to know that I'm not the mouthpiece maker. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I have made uh, some reproduction mouthpieces. Some of them I try really, really hard to make them as close to the original as possible. But I end up realizing that I've spent half a day making one mouthpiece, and I know, oh, man, <laughs> I can do that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, like for Steve Ward, because he was willing to pay for it, I made a copy of a... Of a uh, well, I was going to say Fisk, but actually I think it was a Graves, because he has a... He has an original Fisk E flat tuba mouthpiece. I think I copied his uh, Fisk mouthpiece to put on my <laughs> Fisk tuba. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, and then I think I copied Mark Elrod's. Or as you get older, you realize you, your memory starts going. All those things I remember about the late '70s and early '80s. But anyway, I can't remember yeah. who I made what <laughs> one of these mouthpieces for two years ago. Anyway, I made a. a a Graves reproduction mouthpiece, either for Steve Ward or Mark Elrod, one of those two. Well, the other two makers, uh, Boston makers, uh, well, I mentioned Sibley. The other one that we haven't mentioned that is even more obscure is, is Thomas Paine, who um, 
probably made the first um, rotary valve instruments in That's Boston. Right. Yeah, I remember reading about Thomas Paine in one of Eliason's, uh the the book where he talked about four brass makers, and I forget which particular book that was, but one yeah. of them. <laughs> I think early American brass instrument makers, something. Yeah, like. yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah, Payne, Payne was uh, interesting. Now that I think about it, I, have, I haven't seen any connection between he and Henry Sibley. That would be something that would be fun to find. But uh, but uh, Thomas Payne was one of the er- earliest in the industry in in Boston. Um, I'm sure, Sibley made a screw for him at some point. So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, I think Payne was known to have made a couple of key bugles as well. So there may have been a connection there. Mm-hmm. So Sibley was making them in his shop. Very cool. Now that we've mentioned that, you know, as as we maybe use this as our uh, kind of a, a wrap up topic. Now that you're saying that you're kind of going into retirement, doing about one a year type of thing, I was wondering what your thoughts are in terms of accessibility to instruments today, in terms of either the antique horns or even reproductions, mm-hmm. you know, kind of what you think the, the state of the union is. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I was inter- interested in how you guys have covered that so far. And, um, you know, <clears throat> there have been, there has been a lot of damage done to original instruments on the, on the civil war reenactment field, uh, and other places. And, um, more and more, as these things have gotten more valuable and more rare, uh, people are taking better care of them. But early on, there were a lot of very, very, they may not have been recognized how rare and important historically they were at the time. Mm-hmm. And a lot of instruments have gotten badly damaged and, and badly repaired and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so less of that is happening now, which is a good thing. Uh, if there is a resurgence in interest in you know, re, uh, recreating mid 19th century bands. Uh, ideally, we should have a better supply for new instruments that are, as, you know, like I've said before, as close as possible to the originals. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and um, probably they will be coming from China, as much as that bugs me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But there's no way around it. They're just too expensive to build here. Yeah. Uh, there, there's you know, several people approached uh, Vig Cancel when he was still designing and building new designs. Because there was a period of, in Cancel's life, his last decade or so, where he, he was willing to do almost anything. He made, you know, chimbasos and mm-hmm. uh, compensating euphoniums. You're probably familiar with that. Yeah. And I don't know if you've ever played one of those, but I think they're play better than the current Bessons, <laughs> mm, well, mm. better in tune anyway. Mm. Uh, he was willing to tool up to make all these instruments. Uh, part of what ended the, the company, you know, because the, the debts were high at mm. the end and um, gotcha. uh, too hard to, to, it was too hard to keep the place going profitably. Mm. Uh, anyway, so the point of that story is that several people did approach Zig Cancel. Can you make, these over-the-shoulder instruments for me, and his answer was always yes, sure. And you know, so then the next question is how much. And the, so he has to come up with a price for the prototype, 
and, and then how much each one will be after that. And so you know, the, the prototype is going to be $6,000, and then each one after that is going to be $2,500. <laughs> so it's just too expensive yeah. for someone to have cancel, make over-the-shoulder instruments, and then sell them for a profit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, a lot of people contact me, and they say, uh, how much for a over-the-shoulder B-flat coronet? And, and how, you know, can you send me one next week? <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah. especially when I was when I was busy making, you know, between half a dozen and a dozen instruments a year. Um, you know, the backlog grew, grew to be almost three years. You know, yeah. so it's wow. most of them I'd be telling, yeah, I'll, I'll let you know when to send the deposit, but it's going to be a couple of years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's the beauty of what I'm doing now too. Is I don't I don't even have a backlog anymore. You know, I don't make many promises. I don't work for kids and mm-hmm. just uh, much lower stress level. Yeah, of course. Well, it's yeah. good. You've uh, you've you, earned you've it. Worked, you've worked hard, <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. you, get, you get some time off. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Uh, we're obviously you now we're gonna we're gonna link to your website and to any specific projects or things that we mentioned that are on your website. We can additionally like link to even more specific links and stuff in our show notes and on YouTube. We'll put it in the the item description. Yeah, uh, the research and stuff that you've you know contributed to the field also in your your cataloging and all that kind of stuff that you've made available you know on your website is incredibly valuable. So. Good, you know, good. Ho- hopefully people express the uh the value of the work you've done even with just the website to you and if mm-hmm. they're not you know i'm I'm telling you right now it's it's very significant and extremely helpful so mm-hmm. thank you for for all the work with the website yeah i'm glad to hear and i'm I'm hoping that you guys are successful in drumming up more interest in this you know between people listening to the podcast and going to my website and reading that stuff and you know whatever yeah. else uh you know other resources available It'd be nice to see a resurgence of interest. Yeah, so Rob, this has been this has been a great conversation. We really appreciate you taking the time to do it. I we've of mentioned course. your your website, uh, you know, a bunch throughout the episode, but just one more time, uh, where can people go to find out more about you know the work you've done and all the resources that you've taken the time to put up online? That's pretty much it. RobStewart.com, R-O-B-B-S-T-E-W-A-R-T. I think there is a Rob Stewart with one B. He's oddly enough, I think he's a music industry lawyer. There you go. <laughs> Which is <laughs> kind of an odd <laughs> coincidence. But yeah, yeah so put that two, second two B plugs. in there. And, <laughs> and, and if you re- if you Google Rob Stewart spelled any any possible way with brass at the end of it, you'll find my website. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> To know. The internet's pretty yeah, amazing. Someone was uh, well, uh, off on another tangent. I think maybe I even mentioned this to you, Chris. Someone was telling me that he, a guy sent me an email saying, you spelled Fahrenheit wrong on your website. He didn't tell me where it was. And I, and I, so I went to a page where I knew I had used the word Fahrenheit and it was spelled correctly. So I Googled Rob Stewart Fahrenheit spelled the way he said I spelled it and it popped up. And so I saw, oh, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, the internet is pretty astounding. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It yeah. knows your website better than you do, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And hopefully if anybody, um, you know, go to the website first before even calling or emailing, and you know, you'll probably find a lot of the answers there. Cool, cool. All right. All right. Well, it was great, great meeting you and chatting and, and all this great stuff. Hopefully we can uh, 
you know, hopefully run into you in person at some time when things all settle down and if there's any events or brass get-togethers or something, you know, hopefully we can can grab a drink or something all in person at some point. Yeah, I hope so. All right. Well, I'm really yeah. glad you guys are doing this. This is a great, uh, great resource. Thank you again to Rob Stewart for coming on to the Early American Brass Band podcast. As we mentioned at the top of the show, uh, we were really excited and honored to, to finally get Rob on the, the show with us. His name's come up multiple times, and he is one of the giants in our field. So thank you again to him for taking the time to come and speak with us. Definitely, and especially since he's all the way on the other coast of the United States. <laughs> I know it was a, kind of an early morning for him, kind of mid uh, mid morning for us. So we definitely appreciate him, you know, taking the time out of his day to talk with two doctoral students <laughs> from the other side of the country. So uh, you can follow along uh, with us for any updates uh, from the show on any social media platform. We've got Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, if you'd like to support the show further, you can do that on Patreon or by buying some merch from our Teespring store. And all of those links will be up on our website, www.eabbpodcast.com. They'll be right there uh, at the top bar of the homepage for you to check out. So we hope that you'll follow us on social media and maybe grab a mug or a shirt or a hat or something if you feel so inclined. This episode's featured album is a recording project that Rob Stewart was actually a part of. This is by the California Gold Rush Band and is an album titled Brass Mounted Army, Music of the Old Horse Cavalry. This album uh, is kind of difficult to come by, but there is a website where it's available for purchase, uh, which we will link to in our show notes. And we will also provide some information on our show notes about this album that isn't available uh, anywhere except for the physical copy of the CD. So go check out the Brass Mounted Army by the California Gold Rush Band. Thank you very much for tuning into the Early American Brass Band podcast, and we will see you next week. Music